Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Ed Marson. Ed is the director of the Agile Strategy Lab at the University of North Alabama. He has also co-authored and co-written Strategic Doing, 10 Skills for Agile Leadership, and has been a leader in this field for well over two decades. Ed is someone who has been on the deep dive before, so this is his second time on the show. And there's been, just been so much movement and ambition around his work and the work of Strategic Doing. It was critical for me to have him on the show again. So, Ed, welcome to the deep dive. Oh, thank you very much, Philip. It's it's great to be back. And as I said the last time, uh, the conversations that we had the last time were great, and I'm really looking forward to this one. You're you're a wonderful interviewer. A- absolutely, and and you know it's guests like you that make my work easy because you're doing such rich work and such important work that it makes my job as a person asking the questions actually much easier. And strategic doing has had a an incredible few months since the last time we've had an opportunity to to chat in an official capacity like the show. Before I get into all the work you've done around in Ecuador and online classes and supporting work in Canada, all things that I that I want to spend some time getting to, I actually want to start a little bit at the beginning. And and like I said, you've been on the show before, so many people have have listened to that episode. So I want to thank everybody who listened to that to that initial episode. So I don't think your work will be unfamiliar in in total, but I do want to give those listeners who might be hearing it for the first time an opportunity for you to share a little bit of how you've come to strategic doing and sort of your metamorphosis that led to this work. Well, let's let's break it into into um, to three decades. So, yeah, beginning in the early mid '80s, I was working on the challenges of globalization. So I, I came off of Capitol Hill, and uh, where we weren't really addressing these challenges of globalization, which are quite severe. And I and I jumped into my own consulting practice to address problems of regions and cities who were facing intense global competition and so the you know the uh, the the base the economic base of these communities was was eroding quite rapidly companies were shutting down and the question is how do how do you address this how do you develop a strategy and so i spent the first decade that we're talking about from 1983 or 4 to 1993 uh, trying to apply strategic planning models to these complex problems then a pivot point happened in 1993 when i was out with a a client company out in Singapore talking to the chief technology officer who was a physicist who had come out of, uh, he was a PhD out of MIT and come out of the weapons lab. And he was really focused on one of the weapons labs. And he was really focused on this challenge over lunch. I, I, I said, look, these problems are quite severe. They're really challenging. They're messy. And Trying to address them through strategic planning doesn't work, and he he suggested I start looking at it through open source software development. So that launched me onto about a ten year plan to or a ten year experience really of applying a new strategy, designing a new strategy model using open source software. And then about two thousand and five, I came to Purdue University to because I had a model in my head, I was replicating it, but I didn't know how to teach it. And I didn't know how to document it. And so I came to Purdue. We did test beds for 15 years. And in 2019, we wrote a book about it. And now we're continuing to grow it. And I, I retired from Purdue in 2019 and, and uh, took a position at the University of North Alabama, which is a very dynamic regional school. And um, they were just, uh, they had been doing strategic doing for four or five years. And they just said, come on down and work with us. So I've been very, very happy working with uh, with UNA. They're just a dynamic group of people. It's interesting that you you kind of talk about this process and this life cycle because 
oftentimes when we're in an environment that is so quarter by quarter and we're we're measuring things before we even really know what we should be looking at in some cases, you know, you took the time to work out this model and then you described this experimentation, just running through really labs for, for 15 years. Like, how do you think about the opportunity to have been really afforded the chance to do that? I would be surprised to hear someone tell me that same kind of story today. I think uh, part of it is uh, my own background in a coming, growing up in an engineering family that really wanted to solve complex problems and try to really figure it out. But second, the, the, what I was given the opportunity to do was, was come to Purdue University, which is a land-grant university, and at the time it was led by Martin Jiske, who is an extraordinary leader. And Martin and, and his team, which included Vic Lechtenberg, who was the provost and former dean of the College of Agriculture, they said, you know, we believe in your model. We understand it's going to take time to figure out how to, how to teach it, and we're going to give you the runway to do it. And so they did. And, um, you know, it was um, it was their leadership that enabled me to do it because, I, I you know, I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I, I would have probably given up after about three or four years and uh, gone back to consulting and made a lot of money doing it because you can make a lot of money doing this if you want to. So I, I really give credit to the original Purdue family that brought me in uh, and, and gave me the time and runway to do it. And one of the things that that really jumped out. And, and this is a, a work that I, I spent a little bit of time with um, because I was I was grateful that you shared it with me, which is your recent PhD dissertation. Mm-hmm. And it what was really like really kind of got my mind kind of worrying was the fact that one, it picks up so much as a companion piece to the strategic doing book. Mm-hmm. And and so that really struck um, stuck out to me. And and there's a bunch of things that you that you mentioned as part of this story, which is also the shift of strategy and learning mm-hmm. and strategies learning and, and how we adapt to these wicked problems. I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of explain how that shift away from strategies learning has affected the way you think about and develop strategic doing. Mm-hmm. Well, the context of all of this work is re- was really set in the 1970s, and I brought that in the in the dissertation by by a guy named Donald Schoen. Now, Donald Schoen was a professor at MIT and focused on the challenges of learning. He had a fascinating speech that he was he gave, or a series of lectures, really it was for the BBC, in which he talked about the end of the age of stability. Now, this was 1970 that he gave this talk. And of course, the 1960s were tumultuous, but the implications that he drew out of those uh, out of those lectures was that humans, in order for us to adjust and adapt, are going to have to learn how to learn. And so the challenge, of course, of strategy in a, in a complex environment is that we can't ex ante or before the fact, we can't predict the future. We, by definition, you can't predict the future. So the question then becomes, how do you learn and adapt? How do you create a a system within an organization, a university, or a community that's able to learn and adapt quickly. And so that's that's a fundamentally different type of model than how strategic planning em- emerged. Strategic planning emerged out of World War II, really operations planning. In the 1960s, the Harvard Business School basically embraced strategy as a discipline. And when I went to business school through the 1980s, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, all of this was was kind of codified in a set of lessons around how do you position the business? How do you, this is something that you can control. This is something you can do something, you can position yourself. And it was the notion that uh, that really this was a linear logic that you could analyze your way to prosperity, essentially. And um, those of us who've encountered these complex problems recognize that that's just not true. It doesn't work. And so part of the challenge of strategic doing was how do we, as a society, create more ingenious solutions to the complex problems that we have? If we define the complex wicked problems, which, again, is a, 
an area of scholarship that started to develop in the 1970s. How do we confront these wicked problems and generate solutions to them? Now, there was an interesting, roughly 2001, and very interesting book written by a Canadian uh, environmental scientist called uh, The Ingenuity Gap. This was Thomas Homer Dixon is his name. And, you know, what he was saying was quite true, which was, you know, these complex challenges are piling up at our doorstep and we're not generating the ingenuity we need, the ingenious solutions that we need to solve them. And so what's, how do, how do we do that? And um, the paradox of all this, of course, is that for us to come up with these ingenious solutions, it's not really a technology fix. It's going back to our oldest technology, which is the conversation. And, and, learning, and learning how to design and guide these conversations that generate solutions that we can test, that we can learn from. And um, it turns out that we can do that, that there is a discipline to it. There is a hidden structure to these conversations. And that's really what the PhD was designed to, uh, to document, was my journey over 20 years, and then an exploration into uh, existing scholarly research that explains why does this work? Why does this work? And uh, it turns out that, that there are very strong reasons why it works. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Donald Schoen because that's actually one of the names that I remember you posted about his work and mentioned one of his books on LinkedIn. And this is after I've interviewed him before and we've spoken. And I was like, oh, man, it sounds really interesting. So I went out and got that book. And, you know, subsequently, um, I think I have a couple of his books now. And, you know, it's it's interesting. It's always interesting to me to be able to put those pieces together because there's nothing new again, right? Like people have been wrestling with these challenges. The language might change. The medium under which they're having the conversation might change. But we've been wrestling with how to have solves to complexity and, and even understanding or, or how do we ad- adapt to the complexity? I don't think we can ever really solve it. And I'm curious about how you think the idea and notion of stable systems plays into that. Because when I, when I read those kind of terms, I often think to myself, when, well, when have these systems been stable? You know, like they didn't become unstable in the 60s. Like I know that's, that's a popular like, kind of way in which we teach history, particularly from an American lens, right? That there's these series of events, there tend to be mostly wars, and then, we, you know, the 60s happened and things went haywire, and then other things happened, right? So the 60s is usually this defining moment. And from my kind of reading of history, it's never really been particularly stable, right? Even from an American perception, you know, we extracted huge amounts of lands, indigenous genocide, like those are areas, like if you're in those worlds, that was incredibly unstable, you know, for you, right? So what I want to get at there is like, how how are we defining stability? Because that seems to me to be as much a question of who's asking the question as to whether or not the systems themselves are stable or not. Well, that's right. And and I think you're also right that there is no, you know, if you if you view the world through a systems lens or a complex adaptive systems lens, you recognize there are no stable points. There's, you know, that the, these are constantly continuously evolving. And and what we've been deluding ourselves really through primarily I'm going to I'm going to pick on the economists for a while. I mean, this whole notion that <laughs> that we reach some point of uh, equilibrium you know, the neoclassical economic model is just built on a, a series of simplifying assumptions that anybody in their right mind would say, this is crazy. This is nuts. This doesn't, these assumptions don't hold. And so the policy prescriptions that the neoclassical model gave us clearly hasn't, haven't worked. I mean, you know, the idea that supply side economics works is nuts. I mean, it doesn't work. Uh, you know, all it does is, unfortunately, 30 years has led us to this um, disequilibrium where the democratic consensus underneath underneath the market system has eroded dramatically. And this is really, this is quite serious. So my point is, is that the strategic planning model 
which was designed, again, out of operations planning out of the World War II, really, sort of where it came from, in this notion of industrial organization, which is that there is an industrial structure to markets, and you find find your your ideal position, you position yourself in those markets to maximize your own profitability and return to shareholders. These assumptions don't make any sense anymore. They just don't make any sense. Everything from the idea that that industrial structures are are something that you can analyze and you can fit them together like Lego blocks is nonsense. The idea that that shareholder returns to shareholders is the is the ultimate measure of a business's value to society. That's also nonsense. So what what I think is happening now is a, a bunch of people, thankfully a bunch of economists, good economists, are questioning all of these and and proposing alternatives. You know everything from you know the idea of donut economics, which is uh, comes out of uh, out of England and is being applied in Europe a lot, to uh, you know complexity economics, which is uh, this notion of of uh, continuous change, it, treating our economies and our organizations as complex adaptive systems. So, you know, we're making the shift. What strategic doing is is uh, contributes to that. I think contributes to that notion of hey, we need new cognitive models to deal with with these uh, this complexity. But it comes at it with, from a practitioner's lens. I'm a practitioner from by 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 a profession, and so the question is, okay, how do I actually use this? <laughs> you know, great idea, but how do I actually apply this? <laughs> and and if it doesn't, uh, you know, I used to tell people, you know, I a lot of the folks that I, and I don't mean to be pejorative here, but it's true that some of the folks I dealt with came to meetings in, you know, in bib overalls, you know, these were people who, you know, were judge executives and, you know, of counties and rural counties. And, you know, and if I can't explain it to a person whose job it is to help their community grow, then, you know, it's, it's a very little practical value. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. The theory can get a little like, you know, talk about losing the forest through the trees. Like sometimes, you know, I read this stuff and I'm like, huh? You know, this is why, (laughs) this is why I I think I came to really love the work because it is meant to be practiced Mm. rather than merely talked about. And you made a point also very early on that I highlighted here when you talked about spending your your time and your career in like the swampy lowlands. And I think when you were talking about being a practitioner, that's kind of what you were alluding to, but I wanna I wanna highlight that term in particular and, and kind of give you uh, an opportunity to share more about what you meant when you talked about this idea of being in the swampy lowlands. So let me give you an example. I mean, and this is the Donald Schoen's phrase of the swampy lowlands. So I'm in Ascension Parish, Louisiana. It's probably 1994. I'm trying to five time frame. I'm trying to figure out how do we create a development code in Ascension Parish, which is just south of Baton Rouge. It's where Chemical Alley is, or they call it Cancer Alley. Huge Bhopal-type chemical plants are located there. And they had no zoning ordinance. So that meant that the residents were put at risk because these chemical plants are quite serious. And uh, this was before GPS, right? <laughs> so I'm looking for a small community. It's a black community called Dara, Louisiana. It's, it was, it's a crossroads. But these folks, you talk about environmental racism. You know, these people are downwind from these plants and they are victims, I would say, of fairly frequent, alarmingly frequent releases from these plants. And I'm trying to trying to find a community center in Terrell, Louisiana, and I'm on the wrong side of the Mississippi River. And I'm in a, if you've ever been in a, in a sugarcane field where sugarcane goes up, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet. And uh, of course there's no lights. And then it starts to downpour absolutely buckets of, you know, as it would do in, in Louisiana and I'm completely lost, and I'm probably, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes late to this meeting, and I just wondered, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and that's when you're in the swampy lowlands. That's when, you know, real self-doubt comes in and say, okay, what am I really trying to do here? 
of course, my mind flashed back to the fact that my colleagues who went through the JD MBA program at Virginia are all up in up in New York, New York having dinner or someplace up in New York. And here I am stuck in someplace in the middle of a cane field in, in Louisiana. And But that's when you really have to question yourself, what am I doing? And so if you're really determined to solve complex problems for real people, which is, again, trying to address the challenges of these residents in Darrell, Louisiana. That's what grounds you. That's what grounds you. I mean, you know, and, and some people are made for that. Some people aren't. I'm, I'm sure of it. I know that. But that's uh, unfortunately what's happened in our academy in our, is that scholars who are committed to this work, which they call engagement of trying to real, solve real problems, are they, they're given kind of a second class status. You know, there's a real lack of support, I think, for engagement, scholarship, the idea that being a practitioner, you can come up with rigorous knowledge, you know, scholarly knowledge. And that's really, again, kind of the the point I made with the PhD is that, yeah, you can do this. I mean, there's practitioners can come up with scholarly knowledge that is credible. And, you know, that that leads me into another note. I do want to spend a little bit of time on the swampy lowlands for a second, but because because I, it reminds me of two instances, one that I read recently and one I think I shared with you a while ago that I don't know if you even you'll remember it. Um, it was just an email exchange. But before I go there, when you talk about this difference between practitioners and the academy, and then I think about the way in which we have framed so much of these notions of of strategy, it comes from this planning it's all very linear. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the complexity, I think we would both agree, defies that same linear thinking. And so my question comes down to, and I'm going to be a little glib, but I think you'll get what I mean by that, is, is rationality killing us? Is this idea that there are rational answers mm. or processes to the complexity of the world that existing around us? Is that very much at the root of our challenge or am I being too dismissive of this? No, I think that's that's a very serious challenge because we see it happening in the idea that there's technology fixes to these complex problems. And in many respects, technology can help us, but the real challenge is how do we apply the technology? How do we use the technology? How do we... Uh, address these challenges and the in, almost inevitable unintended consequences uh, that arise from from the adoption of a technology. And so, it's not that we um, we don't reject a rational approach, but a rational approach standing alone is not enough. And this this notion of understanding different systems of thinking and different systems of approaching reality is really critical. So, for example, you know, any Anthropology 101 class will talk about cultures that are involved uh, or organized around the individual and cultures that are organized around the community or, or communal cultures. And communal cultures tend to be thinking about systems holistically much more than individualistic cultures, which are typically organized around what we think of as industrial, the Western industrial culture. And so part of this challenge is trying to integrate these two ways of thinking. And so in strategic doing specifically, we address the challenge by talking about the role that strategic intuition plays. So the people around the table bring their life experience to these complex challenges and you cannot, again, optimize and solve for the optimal solution because you don't, you don't know what's going to work. So there is no algorithm that's going to address this. There's no purely rational solution to it. So what you can do, though, is you can tap into strategic intuition and you can do that in, a, in an ordered way, not, a, not in a random way, in an ordered way. And you can do it in a transparent way that builds trust and builds respect for each other's point of view, that we're all looking at the world through our own straw, as, I, as I've said, and, and we're all looking at our own movie, and nobody's got a, a monopoly on this. And so bringing these different worldviews together is really 
critically important. And strategic doing allows us the flexibility and the structure, and you, because you do have to have structure to this, and the, and the structure to enable us to do that in an efficient way in three or four hours. So these are complex problems, but we've come up with a way to, to address them. And that notion that you mentioned there about trust, and it reminds me of where you mentioned also the idea of, of having a conversation, right? That there are roots within these systems that allow strategic doing to work. Mm-hmm. And how this ties to the other point I wanted to mention about the swampy lowlands before I want to get to Ecuador is like maybe about a week ago, it might've been last week, there was an article in the New York Times about, it sounded very much like what you described in Louisiana, that there's many areas in, in Houston, because the article was focused on Houston, that are incredibly, that where Black communities there are suffering from environmental racism, their homes are built very much near a plant that has been leaking chemicals into the water supply for decades and all the subsequent now health effects and risk connected to that. Higher cancer rates, higher mortality rates, all all the, the stuff. And I remember maybe it was a year ago or so, there was an article about the problems in Kentucky around water and and very much around water corruption and on all these different issues. And Kentucky, famously, uh, Red State, Houston, and these were rural areas in Kentucky. Houston, obviously, is a big city, though Texas is still kind of whatever color they tell me Texas is. Houston probably breaks the other way. So <laughs> I bring all that up to say that, you know, I think you remarked that you had done some work in Kentucky or was familiar with some of the underlying issues there. And how that connects to conversation is, again, how do we bring these sort of disparate worlds that seem to have through lines to the problem, right? Like the situations that you're seeing in Louisiana, what I just described very briefly in Kentucky, what's going on in Houston are unique, but similar, right? There's some connective tissue there that is that is tied to extraction, exploitation, many big issues, right? That are not just oil and gas, right? How do you see effectively getting these types of connective tissues brought together in conversation that begin to develop actionable solutions? Okay. So I, to, to answer that question, I'm going to invite you into a helicopter ride. Come up in my imaginary helicopter ride and we'll go up about you know 10,000 feet and I want you to look down. And um, what you'll see in these economies, typically we have presented an economy as a series of boxes. There's business over here. There's government here. There's a third sector, which we talk about, a nonprofit sector, whatever. And these were boxes that were given to us by economists. This is how the economists presented this. But a practitioner, if you're in a practitioner's world that I've lived in, uh, those boxes don't really make too much sense. And so I'm going to invite you to, to think about a regional economy in a different way. And that is to think about it in terms of a market economy and a civic economy. The market economy is activities and investments that are publicly valuable and privately profitable. In other words, people can make, so it's a, it's a, it operates as a market, but it's constrained because we, you know, we want publicly valuable, meaning, you know, Certain activities that are market-driven aren't publicly valuable, and we make those de- decisions as a, as a group. So the, the civic economy constrains the market economy. And the civic economy includes investments and activities that we do that are publicly valuable, but not privately profitable. So the, public, the civic economy includes government, but it also includes our education systems, our libraries, our police, all of that stuff, philanthropy philanthropic sectors as well. And the civic economy is what drives the market economy. And for 30 years, we've had it the wrong way around. (laughs) We've we've said, all right, the the way to prosperity, to sustainable prosperity for everybody, not just for the the word was everybody's going to benefit this way, is to maximize the market economy and strangle or shrink government to its smallest potential footprint. 
And this is just nonsense. It just doesn't work this way. And when you are in uh, a practitioner's world, like I am, you start to recognize that it's the civic economy that drives the market economy. And it's the civic economy that we have allowed to degrade. And what we need now are conversations in the civic economy to solve these complex challenges. And we don't have that capacity. All you have to do is turn on the television or look at your latest Twitter feed and realize that, you know, school board meetings <laughs> have become the latest battleground. And so you start to realize, okay, we cannot have in our communities these conversations. We don't know how to have them. We can't find the place. We don't know how to lead them. We don't know how to frame them. We don't know. None of that is happening. And that's the challenge that strategic doing addresses, which is how do we frame these conversations and conduct them and guide them in such a way that we can come up with solutions to these complex challenges. And so part of the problem comes down to everything from, so let's just take education for a minute. We've gone through periodic reform efforts to try to make our education system work. You know, the latest one probably was No Child Left Behind, right? <laughs> where, where we said, okay, well, the basic presumption of No Child Left Behind was our, our education system is actually, you know, best in the world. It's one of the best in the world. And what's happening is that somebody's screwing this up. So we're going to run a whole bunch of tests, and we're going to figure out who the people are that are screwing this up, and we're going we're gonna to get rid of them. That's basically what what no child left behind assumptions were that we could test our way to to fixing the system, but that really hasn't worked well, has it? Because for many years in the 1980s and 1990s, high school dropouts were running at around 30 percent. 30 percent of our high schoolers were dropping out uh, uh, were dropping out of high school before college, and so most communities knew more about where their solid waste was going than where their ninth graders were going. And so this is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. And part of the problem is that the system itself, as it's designed, doesn't work. It was, you know, we inherited this system. It doesn't work. And so part of the challenge is how do we have the civic conversations to design the new systems? When I left the Senate Democratic Policy Committee in 1983, I was just absolutely convinced that we're not going to find the solutions in Washington. Solutions aren't going to be there. And I, I think I've been proven right about that. But, um, you know, the solutions are going to come from a lot of laboratories in a lot of communities and a lot of regions who know, who learn how to have these civic conversations to rebuild the civic economy that can support our market economy. And until we do that, you know, we're going to we're going to still struggle. So that's uh, we're back down on the ground back out of the helicopter. No, I mean, the, the helicopter ride was a great one, you know, <laughs> and this is for someone who is deathly afraid of helicopters, right? So I'm glad this was only metaphorical because yeah. <laughs> I, I do not plan on getting in a real helicopter. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea. No, not at all. Um, I think that's what I find so confounding is that people will say, oh, you know, we need to to have conversations. And I, know, and I think they're serious. Like, I think the work that you're doing is predicated upon people coming together and wrestling on a civic level with serious issues. And I look around and I find, like, how? Like, I know this sounds like a basic question. Well, but like, again, again, that's kind of... How? Yeah. How do we talk when we cannot, like, we can't even seem to agree that today is Monday? Well, again, part of it is, is understanding that we can't fix what you're seeing now is are symptoms of a broken system. And so the challenge is not how do we fix the broken system? The question is, how do we design a new system for our kids and our grandkids? That to me is the question, because, again, we got left a system I'm 71, right? We got left a system as a baby boomer that we could exploit. A lot of us got tremendously wealthy off of it, but it really didn't solve very many problems for anybody outside the top, you know, 5% of the, of the country, right? It really, and it created much more serious problems than we had in, in the past. And now, you know, in terms of opioids and things like that, but 
the challenge now is how do we how do we not fix the old system? Because again, I don't think that's the question that we need to figure out. Because I don't think there is fixing the old system. The question is how do we take the assets from the old system and design something entirely new? It's recombinant innovation. It's taking the ideas that we have and connecting them in a new and different way. And so, you know, I'll do the metaphor of the iPhone. I mean, Jobs took the iPhone. None of the technology in the iPhone was new, you know, GPS, all that stuff. You know, it was all, all you know, MP3 players. I mean, that, that was all there. But what he was able to do was recombine it in a way that, that was a, a solution to a problem that people seem to have, want to have, which is, can I have my world in, a pocket, in my pocket, right? Absolutely. So that's recombinant innovation, which is essentially a good argument can be made that that's, that's the innovation process anyway, is just how do we recombine the assets we currently have to create solutions to the problems that we see in, ahead of us? And there's all lots of obstacles to why that doesn't happen. I mean, you know, the, there's a fascinating article in The Guardian just yesterday about the woman who is behind the, the major research between uh, about mRNA vaccines. And she made the point that if scientists left their egos at the door, we could accomplish much more because we don't know how to have these conversations. And what we've done with strategic doing is analyze how complex collaborations emerge and to think really deeply about what is the structure of the conversation that leads to those complex collaborations. And it was in 2005, I realized that there was a model in my head that I was doing something in my head over and over and over again. And I just got off a, a Zoom call where a woman is who's in one of our online classes says, you've given me words to the way I think. Hmm. And so a lot of people not enough, but a lot of people know how to collaborate, but they can't teach you how to collaborate because they don't, they haven't thought enough deeply enough about what are the skills? How do I do this? It's like some of the best athletes. I know we said we weren't going to talk a lot about sports, but it's like some of the best athletes are made the best coaches because they just kind of do the thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so part of it is, okay, this can't scale until we can teach it. And it was only when we knew that we could teach it, that we wrote the book. That's why we didn't write the book when I first came to Purdue and we wrote the book when I left Purdue primarily because, okay, this, you know, we've accomplished something here. And, you know, I think that's a, a perfect bridge because I do want to spend time on Ecuador and the work that you've recently been doing there, which I, I found to really be fascinating because it showed the commitment on behalf of a, of a government to understand that they need what you described, which is this recombinant innovation, mm -hmm. right? Like understanding that tinkering around the edges of a broken system is not going to move us forward in a significant way. And so now there's an invitation to do something different. And, you know, I, I remember, I, I think I wrote you like shortly thereafter you made that announcement and, you know, I just wanted to learn more about it. And I think this is the perfect place to kind of share a little bit about how that came about, but then more so now that you've you've done some of that work because it's an ongoing process. What have you been thinking about it now that it's kind of coming to fruition? Well, um, the story starts with Julio Jose Prado, who was a at the time was a professor of uh, business at one of the business schools in Quito, and he had followed me on LinkedIn and and came to Purdue to learn about strategic doing. And when I asked him why was he interested in doing this, he said, look, I study clusters. I've been you know, involved with all these different cluster initiatives all over the world with Michael Porter and other people. And what those models enable you to do is to analyze clusters. What strategic doing enables you to do is figure out how to build clusters, which is different. And I said, okay, well, that sounds great because that's Excellent. He came back to Ecuador. He spent about three years working on different projects using strategic doing, and he became convinced that it, that it actually works. And so when President Lasso was elected in April in Ecuador, President Lasso appointed Julio to become the Minister of Production and Trade, which is kind of in the U.S. It's kind of the combination of the U.S. Trade Representative and the Commerce Department. It's kind of mashed together. He's got a big portfolio. And he connected with me before he was sworn in and said, I want to figure out how to deploy strategic doing across Ecuador. Now, what we 
talked about then was uh, thinking about, okay, well, where, where specifically might we want to do this? And we quickly nailed down Guayaquil, which is the large commercial center on the coast, and uh, Quito, which is obviously the, the capital. In order for us to do that, we started drawing off of, talk about recombinant innovation, we started drawing off of where have we done large-scale deployments before. So we have done two really fairly large-scale deployments. One was around 50 universities with engineering faculty trying to redesign engineering education and how we built teams, 50 teams, to do that and how we worked to enable the teams to learn from each other. And that those 50, 50 universities generated over 500 collaborations. So what were the lessons we learned there? The second area that we looked at was Puerto Rico after Maria, after the hurricane. And we deployed through, we had deployed through University of Puerto Rico. And how did we, how did we expand uh, our work in Puerto Rico? What was the deployment path there? So we kind of mashed these two things together to come up with a quick start program for Ecuador. And we added a third, which is online education, which is something that we, now that we have the University of North Alabama, which is a, a very entrepreneurial university and knows a lot about online education, they were able to help us do that. So we put these three things together and we came up with a quick start program. And so we went down and uh, we started the immediately the the online education program then we went down to the and conducted workshops so that the we could actually deploy these skills on the ground in 22 different clusters and now we are continuing that work um as we go forward now you know what what have we learned one one is we've learned that yes we can we, we knew this already that we can teach it in another language so we can teach it in spanish so we translated all the materials into spanish and we've done all that the second is that, that it works, that it works in, in a different culture. And we'd learned that not only in, in our work in uh, Puerto Rico, of course, but, but also in the Netherlands and Dutch. And we've done some work in Germany and German, and we started launching in, in uh, China. You kind of understand how this could work together, um, but you always run into roadblocks and you're always running into, and the challenge, the biggest challenge in, in, in Ecuador is this history of, of very polarized, uh, ideological politics. And it's worse than ours, of course, but it's, it's, we're, we're on that path. Worse than where, ours. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you end Shocking. up, <laughs> but we're, I mean, you know, it's, it's similar in the sense that you have this, you have a, you have a, a very polarized electorate and a sense of, you know, either or solutions, either it's government who's got to lead this or it's got to be business who leads it. And, you know, if it's if it's government, there's a corruption problem. And if there's business, there's a corruption problem. And uh, we don't trust each other and all of those kinds of problems. So the, the issue of trust has become a really critical problem for us to address. And so the way in which we do this is we're thinking about um, who are the early adopters here? You know, we're using it. We're using the idea of, you know, uh, Everett Rogers, you know, the idea of the innovation adoption. Uh, and we're thinking about, okay, who are the, who are the early adopters in this group? How do we bring them together? And so now we're bringing them together every week and we're talking about these complex problems. How do we build trust? And of course you build trust in strategic doing, you build trust by, by what we call micro commitments. You make small commitments and you actually do them. <laughs> so that's how we learn how to build trust with one another. You say, okay, well, I'll see you next Tuesday. And then you show up next Tuesday or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll send you this book. And then you do send them the book, you know? And so you actually set up this process where people are making these micro commitments and working together and they learn, they quickly learn how to, to trust each other. And, and we encourage them also to, um, to, you know, we think about ostracism usually as a, as a negative idea, but there's a positive aspect to ostracism too, of enforcing values. So you get people who are not trustworthy and you basically move them toward the edge, move them toward the outside. Don't, don't engage with those folks because they're not trustworthy. So, uh, building these new habits will take time. There's no question about it. I mean, you know, Oklahoma City took took us seven or eight years before we got real traction in Oklahoma City. And, you know, and, and uh, my colleague in Charleston to build a 
an ecosystem there, I would say, you know, he's been at it for 17 years. He's done a marvelous job. So you start to think about, okay, well, this is a new path that we're going to give to our kids and our grandkids. That's, that's really the mindset you have to bring to this work. And when you start to reframe it that way, then people start to, partisan differences start to, um, start to melt away. I mean, you know, Strategic doing was was incubated in very, very conservative places like Louisiana and rural Kentucky for seven years in rural Kentucky. And and we never dealt with R's and D's, you know, because we you know, we never we never dealt it because we never framed the problem that way. We never framed the challenge that way. We always framed it, okay, well, what are we gonna do in this community to help our kids and our grandkids? That our client is three years old now. So that's who our client is. Okay, so what are we gonna give her, you know, in 15 years or 20 years when she graduates, what is the world she's going to enter? Now we got to start designing that now. And so if you have that kind of mindset, then it's much easier to, to not so much to, well, you basically just turn away. You don't engage, you don't engage in the, you know, the old, and so many of our communities need those challenges. And if you, I remember in Anderson, Indiana, one time I was dealing with a person who was complaining about the high school dropout problem. And I said, yeah, the high school dropout problem is serious in this county. It's very serious. But where are you going to solve this? Are you going to solve this problem at the lettuce counter in the grocery store? I mean, <laughs> no, you got to have a conversation about it. We got to We got to do that. You know, we got to figure out some solutions here. And nobody is going to solve these but you. That's the other aspect of this, which is that the wisdom to solve these challenges is already in the room somewhere, or it's in the networks of the people in the room somewhere. So, you know, yeah, stop waiting for somebody to come in and solve it for you. Yeah, there's definitely not going to be a, a parachuting in of, of some level of expertise, particularly when you're operating on the local level. I think when I'm, when I think about how we view complexity and the work you're doing in a place like Ecuador, as you mentioned, as as hard as it might be for me to believe a place that is more stratified than here, I can imagine it, though I find it scary. Um, but another thing that kind of made me think as we were as I was getting prepared for our conversation is how much or how often rather problems are framed in a true false. Um, rather than in a better or worse in terms of solution. And, and maybe, you know, it, it's recent Afghanistan and, and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to offer an, a, an additional challenge to that, which is instead of better to worse when it comes to complexity, can it be worse to worse still? Not, not being cynical, but some choices that we have to make, there is no better. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, climate change is it's rapidly becoming that, right? I mean, I, again, I think the the issue is one of leadership in terms of framing framing questions that help us design a future that we want together. And and our leaders, when I talk about leadership, I'm talking about people who are cap- capable of guiding these conversations, designing, guiding these conversations. This leadership that has nothing to do with positional leadership; it has everything to do with your own integrity as a person and your your own willingness to step forward and to to raise the question uh, that attracts people's interest in such a way that they're willing to share their expertise and and work with you toward toward a set of solutions we're not going to solve these problems in a technical fix now technology will help us there's no question about that but what's what we need now is what I'll call swarm innovation. We need all sorts of different solutions and some of them will be, some of them won't work for a little while or some of them won't work for a little while and then they won't work. Some of them will scale, some of them will grow, some will, but we can't tell before the fact which ones are which. So the challenge is planting a lot of seeds, you know, seats now and that those can be done by any group that comes together and says okay we're going to actually solve these uh, develop a solution develop a solution to one of these complex problems so so if you go into flint now and talk about 
teenage homicides, there are dozens of things that people are doing to reduce teenage homicides, not just one. There's no one solution to that, but they're doing all sorts of different things and they're using their own assets. They're not asking permission from anybody. They're not trying to, you know, go for a grant to get it. You know, they're not pleading with Washington to, you know, dump more money into Flint. They're saying, we have the ingenuity and the wisdom to come up with solutions. Can we make life better? Yeah. And the answer is for everybody. And the answer is yes, we can. We can do that. And humans have been able to do that. Now, relying, this problem right now is that we've relied too much on the market to tell us what what those, you know, the market doesn't work that way. The market, market generates huge inequalities. It chews up huge resources that are, you know, and uh, left alone, we wouldn't have a, 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 you know, we wouldn't have a, a salmon fishery up in Alaska where they, you know, have, I don't know. I, I've flown over that area. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, why do we need to, you know, why do we need, why does the world need more, more gold? I mean, tell me. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. If I could answer that one, (laughs) we'd be in, we'd be in a much better place. You know, I, I, you know, I have the final two segments of the show, which is um, off the dome and the drop before we we get to that. um, I want to ask one more question. And you, you mentioned this in the thesis where, you know, you're like, I, I'm writing this at the end of the career rather than at the beginning when, when most people would be writing a thesis. And I found that to be significant, not that, that it's happening that way, but that you've noted that it's happening that way and that it was important to mention as to the why. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of share why you think that's significant, because I think it ties very much to how and why strategic doing is designed the way it is. Well, you know, again, I took on a a really hard problem, which is, you know, how do we, how do we develop strategy in networks when nobody can tell anybody what to do? In other words, how do we come up with better solutions in that kind of context? And it turns out that the only way to deal with that problem, that complex problem, is by looking at the world through a pragmatist lens, in other words, trying to solve the problem, and to uh, be very, very diligent about the endpoint, which is, can I teach this to anybody? And it took, took a whole career to do that. I never thought it would, but the work's not done. And so the purpose of the to the extent that I can do it, the purpose of the PhD is simply to go to the next generation of scholars and say, the work's not over, but don't, don't start back where I started 25 years ago, because <laughs> that's a waste of time. And uh, so it was a way to not only validate the work that I was doing and say, okay, why does this work? And to understand how other scholars can help me understand why it works, which was documented there, but also to go to future scholars and say, there's some really important questions that need to be answered here. And we don't have the answers yet. So for example, you address those questions of, of leadership frame. We talk about framing questions, which is part of the, part of the discipline, but how do we frame those in a way that address the past injustices that we've encountered how do, how do you frame those in a way to, that recognizes the hurt and the pain of the people of Darrell, Louisiana, and, and acknowledges that? Because I don't think we, we can build these new systems without understanding the worldview of, of everyone at the table. And the worldview of Black youth growing up in Darrell, Louisiana, is I'm growing up in the, and there's yellow dust covering my car every morning or my parents' car every morning. Why is that? And so you, 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 have, to, you have to address these challenges in a, in a way. And I don't think we, have a, we don't have a good solution to that yet. Uh, you know, we don't have a good way to do that. And, and maybe it's learning from the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa. Maybe it's, I don't know the answer to that, but that's one area. There's also good technology questions, which is how do we visualize the networks that we have? These networks are all invisible, tied together by invisible threads. 
how can we use social network analysis in a trusted environment to to visualize the networks we have so that we can speed the process of what I call closing triangles, what a scholar would call triadic closure, which is basically I know I know Philip and I know George, but Philip and George don't know each other. They need to know each other. And, you know, by doing that kind of triadic closure, we strengthen our networks. And if we do that thousands of times, then our networks are in our community and our companies are stronger. So there are a lot of interesting questions that need to be addressed. Absolutely. And and it's what I call um, good people should know good people. Yeah, and, there you go. that's it. And yeah. I'm always making these types of connections and introductions and, and, and likewise, folks are doing it for me. And, you know, it's, it's the only way I've been able to, you know, build the relationships that I've had to, to continue to do the work that I've done. And, um, you know, it, it's very much a stewardship model. Another thing that I talk about a lot, you know, how do we pass on these, these values, this culture, um, and and have a rich way of thinking it thinking about these things as we move forward. It's a general; these are gener, generational types of challenges that that we're facing. And that's the right way to frame it, in my in my view. And that and that's really the whole purpose of the PhD was to say, okay, I've spent the last thirty years thinking about this problem. Here's what I've learned. You know, kick your tires. I mean, it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. It's but but go on from here. Don't. Don't repeat the same stupid mistakes I made. <laughs> Absolutely. And and that I've made and that we're all making, but it's all in, in service to having these richer, deeper conversations that we can kind of work through this complexity together. Because we're working through it together whether or not we know it or not, right? <laughs> so true. we might as well get on get on the same page. I, I wanna I wanna jump into off the dome, you know, because if we if I don't keep an eye on the time, you and I can keep doing this for a long time. <laughs> And I got to respect your afternoon. So I have three very quick off the dome questions, and these are just for fun, you know? So literally, first thing that comes to mind, go for it. And my first one is, if you were to get your own late night show, so we're adding you to the pantheon of streaming options or or, um, TV options to have your own late night show, who would be your first guest? Uh, Philip McKenzie. <laughs> and I'm not being no, I'm I'm not being flip about that. I I just think you have a great voice. You have a fascinating range of people on your podcast. I mean, you know, I don't think we need celebrities. You know, people who position themselves as celebrities, right? I think we need people who <laughs> who have genuine conversations. And you know, in the podcast world, I you know, I put you right at the top. So that, oh, thank you so much. And I would I would happy to be on the show. That sign me up if that no, ever happened. What I would do is get a contract and put you in the in the seat, and I'd be a producer because I don't I don't like being in front of cameras. Oh. So Fair enough. Out, I put you there, and I'll be a executive producer or something like that. At the, you know, the producer credit is the one you want the most. <laughs> exactly. All right. My my second one is: Do you have a favorite time of day, and if so, what is it? And it doesn't have to be a specific time, like three o'clock. More like you know, broad sense of time of day. <laughs> yeah. Early. Yeah. Early morning is, is time for me because, uh, you know, that's when I, I, I think better. I write better. I do some meditation, you know, it's just, it's my quiet time and I, it's just such a luxury to have it. And, um, you know, this morning I had a, I had a dentist appointment at seven forty in the morning and it really screwed me up. <laughs> Because it was like, oh my gosh, I got to do this. <laughs> so I yeah. don't know. So I've I've put a moratorium on seven forty in the morning. Dennis of Ireland. There you go. No, that's that's a great time. I'm I'm very similar. I'm kind of up early, up late, but I do love mornings. Um, yeah. They're very quiet before the storm, so to speak. Yep. And my final off the dome is a would you rather question. So would you rather be an Olympic medalist or an astronaut? Oh, that's a good one. I I actually would be rather be an Olympic medalist. I I when I was growing up, I aspired to go to the Olympic trials as a swimmer. Now, when I was fourteen or thirteen and fourteen, I was ranked number three in the country in my age group, and so my dream was always to go to the Olympics. And by the time I was sixteen, I realized I'm not going to get to the Olympics, but maybe I can get to the Olympic trials. And so I've always had that in the back of my mind. The, the competition 
uh, and I write about this a little bit in on LinkedIn, the competition mindset, the disciplined mindset that you need to compete at a very, very high level. Um, that taught me a whole lot about strategic doing. It was great because the discipline actually, you know, you think about it and you go, oh God, discipline. But actually discipline sets you free. It, it opens doors. It just, you know, and so, yeah, that's what I would do. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Discipline, there's power in um, limitations. I know a lot of people don't like to think about it that way, but, but when I, and I think about discipline in that same way, because you have to be focused on doing the thing, right? Like as a, as a former track athlete, I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning if I had to yeah. go for a run before a class, right? Like that was just the way it was. And I learned a lot of lessons in having to, to do that. Here's a practical example of why, how that plays out in strategic doing. We put the strategic doing workshop into time buckets. So, you, you know, you only have like 10 or 15 minutes to do this thing. And for that exact reason, which is it's a discipline, you've got to keep focused and you got to, you know, okay, no chit chat here, focus on this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and people say that a lot with creative briefs, right? Like the best creative brief is the one that's short, <laughs> you know, gives, right. yeah. gives you limits and, and the limits give you imagination, right? Rather than the other way around. Open-ended briefs to no good. Bob Rice was a was a hired me out of law school and and he had been in the solicitor's office. Now this is a guy who was you know Secretary of Labor for Clinton, right? And when we were writing, he gave us a rule to try to make your sentences eight words long. And it was really the point was be clear in what you're thinking, be clear in you know in eight words was just. But the point was be very clear as much as much as you can. Be very clear about your thinking. And the way to think about that is to, you know, shorten your sentences up. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to get us into the drop. Yeah. And I have a couple of drops, actually. Oh. And do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Yeah, no, you go first. Yeah. Okay. My two drops are one's musical and one is viewing. So the first one is we have the anniversary that just passed of 20 years of the Blueprint one of Jay-Z's seminal albums, one of my favorite Jay-Z records. So this is a perfect time on 20-year anniversary of the release of The Blueprint to go back. And if one is pre-supposed pre, um, to check out hip-hop, that's a great record to start with. It is a classic in every um, sense of the word. And the other is a show that I binge-watched this past weekend, which is available on Netflix called Dr. Foster, which went in directions I didn't think it would. It's a wild ride. I've, I'll leave it at that because I don't want to spoil it. But that's those are my two drops. Dr. Foster on Netflix and Jay-Z, The Blueprint, 20 years ago on September 11th, it was released. Okay. So I've got two. I actually have two drops too. The first one is, a, it has to be a book because I, I love books. But first one is is the data story by, by Nancy Duarte. Now, Nancy Duarte, if you're not familiar with her work, She's she's a consultant out in Silicon Valley, I guess, but she does incredible work helping you tell your story. And so this is the, her her book is is masterful, and all of her books are masterful. So I would say anything by Nancy Duarte. And the second is a movie which I watched this weekend, and uh, written by Dashiell Hammett, and it's the second Thin Man movie with William Powell and Myrna Loy, and. Um, Dashiell Hammett was, well, anyway, anything by him was, is is great mystery, but th- this <laughs> this was a great movie. So um, it's the second. I think it's called After the Thin Man, but it's the second. It's the second Thin Man movie. Uh, all of the Thin Man movies by with, with Myrna Loy and William Powell are great, but anyway, that those are those are two worth. If you love that kind of mystery, that it's a great it's a great movie. I'll check them out. It's always great drops. And I, you know, I'm always one for the book. So anytime uh, a guest um, brings out a book, I'm always like jotting it down and ready to not just throw it in the show notes, show notes, but very often I get them myself. So I'm not only asking of these, asking for people to give me these drops, I actually do check them out myself as the host. So thank you for those. And Thank you, as always, for a, a great conversation. You know, like I said, I'm someone that's always checking out your work on LinkedIn, on Twitter. 
looking up the things you post, like downloading the PDFs when you have them. So you're, uh, I think, an incredible source of um, information and, and thought. And I really want to thank you for joining me on the deep dive. Well, Philip, uh, thank you so much for those kind words. That's great. And and if I ever do get a late night slot, you're my man. You get you got to do it for me. So uh, yeah. absolutely, he, that happens. I'm there. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.